we have lost around 85% of oyster reefs. That's not only the loss of oysters, but also the habitat they provide other marine animals and plants. Oysters are amazing. Not only do some create pearls, but as sequential hermaphrodites, they can switch between male and female almost on a daily basis. Dr. Dominic McAvee is a researcher at the University of Adelaide in Australia. His work centers around restoring lost marine ecosystems, specifically shellfish reefs. Along with employing novel technology and reef restoration projects, he seeks to understand how oysters enhance the resilience and function of coastal ecosystems, and to develop conservation messaging strategies that enhance public engagement bias, conservation optimism. Dominic McAfee, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So I want to hear all about your projects with oyster reefs, shellfish reefs, which is an area that people don't know as much about as maybe, say, coral reefs. But first, just tell us what in general drew you to the magic of the ocean. Oh, wow. Well, growing up in Australia, a lot of people get the opportunity to spend time living by the beach. The vast majority of Australians live within 50 kilometers of the sea. And so from a young age, I've been going to the beach and there's always so much majesty and wonder associated with the sea because we obviously can't see beneath the waves. And I remember as a young kid playing on beaches and seeing all sorts of wonderful creatures being washed ashore after storms, etc. And I've always been captivated by the sea. I never, ever thought that I'd have the opportunity to work as a marine ecologist or to work with the sea, but it's an absolute privilege that I get to do that now. Yes, and you're involved in a very impressive project on Australia's oyster reefs or shellfish reefs. I didn't understand that they're one of the most critically endangered marine ecosystems. Yeah, pretty much nobody understood that until very recently. It's all very new knowledge, largely because we love oysters, or rather we love eating oysters, and we've been harvesting them for millennia, but really intensively since the Industrial Revolution and the invention of industrialized dredge fishing, where we drag nets along the seafloor and indiscriminately remove everything that's down there. But Oyster reefs were one of the primary habitats on temperate coastlines, cool water coastlines, all around the world until about 200 years ago. And it's only relatively recent knowledge, piecing the puzzle together of what we've lost, that we've been able to recognize that we've lost something like 85% of oyster reefs globally. In Australia, it's over 99%. We've absolutely smashed this ecosystem to smithereens. It covered something like 7,000 kilometers of coastline. And the flat oyster reef, for example, that the flat type of oyster that we work with, they were completely removed from the Australian mainland over about 5,000 kilometres of reef destroyed in a very short period of time. And because of the intensity with which the coastlines were modified following European settlement of Australia, they haven't been able to come back naturally. Australia was partly built on the like cement of oysters. I'm thinking about self-interest there in a carbon sink and like the kidneys of the ocean in terms of filtration and just to go into the many things that we don't realize that oysters do for us. Sure. I like to call them ecological superheroes. We don't really think of oysters as having an important environmental role, but they do so many different things. They provide structure, much like trees in a forest or coral reefs in a tropical sea. They provide this 
complex, convoluted habitat. And we think of oysters as these small organisms, a few centimetres long. But before we destroyed these reefs, some of them were recorded being over four metres high. They would stretch for tens of kilometres squared, just an individual reef, this undulating habitat, metres above the seafloor. And you'd have networks of these reefs, which would cover astonishingly large areas. The filter feeders, that's how they eat. So they just remove the tiny little particles from the water column. And one oyster can filter something like between 100 and 200 litres of water a day. If you multiply that by the billions or trillions of oysters that would have made up one of these oyster reefs, that's an incredibly efficient filtration pump for the coastline. We refer to them as the kidneys of the coastline because they could filter astonishing amounts of water. And when they've been lost from really large estuaries, a great example is the Chesapeake Bay in North America, the largest estuary in North America. They had enormous oyster reefs. And when they were lost, the entire ecosystem went through what we call a regime shift, where it transitioned from this bottom benthic habitat, so a habitat dominated by seagrasses and kelps and oysters. The loss of the filtration function of oysters meant that there was a lot of sediment buildup, light can't penetrate to the seafloor, and then it transitioned to a pelagic system where jellyfish and other organisms are able to dominate the ecosystem. So the filtration function is just one important thing that oysters do. A lot of my research has been up and down the east coast of Australia where I looked at the habitat that oysters would provide invertebrate communities and, and fish communities. And one sort of baseball-sized clump of oysters could easily house over a thousand other invertebrates belonging to a hundred plus species. These are invertebrate megacities and those invertebrates are the detritivores and the grazers that underpin ecosystem function and nutrient cycling and also the broader coastal food web. A lot of Fish would feed on oyster reefs and also use them as nursery habitats. So if you think of the Great Barrier Reef or any coral reef, the oysters are the cold water equivalent to the coral. They provide the structure, which provides the foundations for thriving ecosystems, but oysters also filter the water. So they do a heck of a lot. And so you're embracing new technologies and how is that working? Well, I'll set the scene as to why we're using underwater wizardry to try to restore oyster reefs. So we've lost over 99%, thousands of kilometres. And this is an ecosystem that was sustainably used by Indigenous Australians for at least 5,000 years, probably longer. The shell middens going back for 10,000 years a really important part of the socioeconomics of coastal life around Australia for a long, long time. So it's no surprise that when Europeans arrived, they also relied on this resource. They just harvested it so much that it collapsed. And within a few generations of that collapse, the late 1800s, we'd forgotten that these reefs ever existed. So it's only in recent times that we've discovered maps showing how big the reefs were, covering hundreds of kilometres squared individual reefs, certainly in South Australia. And there's now a real motivation to bring those back. And this is a first for modern marine management and modern science in Australia. We don't, we didn't know how to bring these oyster reefs back. So one of the important things you need to do is to provide appropriate substrate, rocks or something hard on the seabed to allow the oysters to, if they can find this substrate, to settle on it and start to regenerate that habitat. 
Historically, they settled on other oysters, but they're all gone. So we can put boulders in the water, rocks in the water, or dead oyster shell, and hope that the oysters find it, but there's no guarantee that they will. So one of the things we've been doing is trying to understand how an oyster interprets its environment how it finds a suitable place to live. And far from being passive drifting animals, they are brainless invertebrates, so there might not be a lot going on upstairs, but they do have rudimentary eyes, so they use sight a little bit to choose a place to live. They are able to interpret olfactory cues, so they use smell. They can smell other oysters and other things that are an indication of a good place to live, and they can follow those smells. But at the broader scales, they use sound. And we've been actually playing healthy marine sounds with underwater speakers to attract oysters towards these reefs. So when the historical native habitat was lost. It also lost the sound that was associated with those reefs. That sound created by the millions of animals that live in amongst the oysters. They live in amongst that complex habitat and they create a lot of noise as it turns out. Most of that noise can be attributed to snapping shrimp, which snap the claw shut really, really fast and make this really intense popping sound. When you have thousands of those or millions of those aggregated in a small area, that sound can be really intense and travel quite far. And a lot of animals use that sound to find a suitable place to live. Uh, so we've been actually recording the healthiest sounds we can find in the area and then playing them back with speakers that we make ourselves. And it's an incredibly potent tool. Playing sound has increased the amount of oysters that find and settle on our reefs by at least five times. Right. And it's just noise pollution that we create. Just go into that a little bit so that we can understand. Noise pollution, the rise of anthropogenic noise is changing the way we think about marine sound. We didn't think much about it at all. We certainly didn't think much about marine sound as being something that's beneficial to other animals. But now there's recognition that anthropogenic noise, noise from shipping and motorboats and other urban noise, is masking the natural sounds of the sea and dominating the marine soundscape, as we call it. So as ecosystems have degraded, they've fallen silent. And at the same time, our industrial activities in the sea have increased the amount of noise and really there's nowhere in the sea to hide from anthropogenic noise. So that is a major challenge going forward. We're hoping that we can counteract some of those negative impacts of anthropogenic noise by playing healthy sound, useful sound. But at this stage, it seems that anthropogenic noise can mask those natural sounds, it's going to be a major challenge to address uh, and something that needs to be addressed quite soon because the rise of sound has happened very fast and it has all sorts of negative consequences for all sorts of marine animals. We really don't know what it does for anything other than your iconic dolphins and whales and other commercially valuable species. Nobody knows or probably cares what sound does to an oyster, but we are learning that it does stress them out and influences the impact on the environment. You touched upon the importance of Indigenous knowledge in oyster reef conservation. Can you speak to the importance of local population practices and knowledge in conservation science and how it helps advance the field and use that knowledge and integrate it with some of these new technological 
things you have come up with? Traditional knowledge is increasingly recognized as a missing component of more Western scientific knowledge. And there's a hell of a lot to be learned from people who've been able to sustainably manage ecosystems for thousands of years. Sort of Western science approach to ecosystem management is, is shedding a lot of light on how ecosystems work, but it misses the fundamental component of humans embedded in that system. And it's those social, ecological, human nature relationships, which are actually the key drivers for successful conservation and restoration projects. So that's something that's really important to embed in all projects. And without Indigenous knowledge, you're certainly missing a key part of the puzzle. We're only just scratching the surface and opening our eyes to the essential nature of having Indigenous knowledge and land management practices embedded into contemporary coastal and land management. The catastrophic fires that we've been having over the last few years and are set to continue are a really important example of how you need to have those human nature relationships embedded in environmental management. I was wondering if you could talk us through the benefits of a multi-species restoration conservation mindset as opposed to a single species conservation initiative and how would you explain the importance of a multi-species restoration mindset to someone with a maybe human-centric or utilitarian mindset when it comes to oysters. For example, someone who just recognizes their importance for human consumption and that's their only value. Oh, that's a great question. It seems intuitive that if we're going to restore ecosystems, we need to restore multiple species and multiple habitat types for them to function the way we hope that they will function. Nevertheless, 85% of restoration practitioners focus on single species approaches. It's from a practical perspective, easier to do single species restorations, but there's not a single ecosystem in the world where you have a single species. Even giant kelp forests have a lot of other habitat structuring organisms living within and on top those, those kelp. So the prevailing mindset is that if we bring back the key foundation species that creates the habitat and then allows other species to colonize the area, by bringing them back, it'll bring back those other species. But that's not necessarily the case because the connectivity of ecosystems has been absolutely destroyed in many environments around the world. So a good example is from the oyster restoration work I've been working on. When the first reefs we constructed in Southern Australia, it was the first large-scale reef restoration in the Southern Hemisphere. Not long ago, 2017, we really didn't know what we were doing. So the boulders that we used to provide hard foundations to bring back the oysters that we're interested in were laid down in the middle of winter. And at that time, there were no oysters in the water column. They breed when water temperatures get a little bit warmer and then through summer. But putting those boulders down on a heavily modified coastline where you've got runoff and increased sediment loads from urbanization of coastal areas. Those conditions facilitate something called turf algae, a weed that dominates modified coastal ecosystems all around the world. And if you put boulders or something hard in the water, it can smother them within a matter of weeks and then exclude other organisms. Ecologically, it's not really valuable. It's not great fish habitat. It's not fantastic for other organisms. 
So one of the techniques we used going forward was a multi-species approach where we combined the provision of that substrate with kelp transplants. We've also lost kelp forests all around these coastlines. And that kelp naturally removes turf algae, providing turf-free habitat substrate for the oysters to settle on. That's just an example of what we call positive species interactions, where historically, throughout much of the 20th century, the prevailing theory in ecology is that species are always in competition. And that concept has carried over into restoration practice where we plan single species to limit competition. What we know now, based on fantastic research over the last 25, 30 years, is that many interactions are positive between different species. So you get things like oysters and seagrass benefiting each other, improving each other's growth. Oysters do the filtering, they reduce the amount of particles in the water, allows sunlight to penetrate further, it allows seagrass to grow more, that protects the oysters from predators more. You get these feedbacks where you have this positive interaction and both organisms, or at least one organism, profits from that interaction. So I think it's really important that when we're designing restorations and conservation works, we think about those interactions between different species rather than taking a human mindset of, okay, let's limit competition and just try to get this one organism to do really well, because it's destined to fail if we take those approaches which don't represent anything that you find in nature. Like you mentioned, many mainstream conservation efforts include species-specific ones that seem to promote the image of keystone species like a polar bear or a tiger. So what sort of approaches you use to quantify the social value of an oyster reef as a whole to the public in order to promote funding for your projects and global interest in reef conservation? So the approach has been sharing the incredible story behind this loss of oyster reefs. And it's not an oyster story, it's a human story. It's about how humans have interacted with an environment with negative outcomes, but then also providing that optimism that we can bring these ecosystems back. It would be naive to say that we're not still naive about how we manage ecosystems, but we've come through a period where we really didn't understand that the bounty of the sea, which was thought to be unlimited, can be degraded within a relatively short period of time. And it's absolutely essential that you have community on board. Otherwise, it's community behaviours that can easily undo any good work you do through conservation. So we talk about the fish as a major outcome of restoring these reefs. Oysters provide really good nursery habitat. They provide fantastic breeding grounds. A lot of fish lay their eggs directly on the oyster shells, and I can pick up an individual oyster shell and find 5,000 fish eggs on just one shell. So they can be hyper-productive fish environments. And that's the approach that we take, and something that I think about a lot, being somebody who writes about conservation optimism, which is a really potent way of grabbing people's attention. But there's a lot of nuance in the use of optimism. You need to certainly balance it with an appropriate amount of pessimism or realism because things are not good. The state of the environment is quite terrible in many ways. But at the same time, you need to take a historic perspective when we think about where we are at the moment, where we're going, 
and very importantly, where we've been. And a lot of habitats have been smashed, certainly over the last 200 in particular. And yet they still show resilience to come back given the opportunity. And I think that's where a lot of the optimism comes from. Despite the fact that we weren't looking after the environment at all, or not much. And when I say we, I'm talking about large Western society, which has influenced much of the way we interact with the environment these days. Despite many hundreds of years of poor treatment of the environment, we are discovering that with a little bit of attention and a bit of investment to try and help these ecosystems come back, they can come back quite quickly, particularly in the marine environment. So there's a lot of activity happening to try and repair the environment. The backdrop is the Anthropocene, where things have become quite dire. In many cases, we are facing a biodiversity crisis and the environment is rapidly changing. But the environmental movement has gained so much momentum over the last few decades. And the United Nations Decade on Ecosystem Restoration is a great example of how we're now seeing these massive global commitments to repair nature. We're beginning to appreciate that a healthy planet is essential to healthy humanity. So whereas things are bad, there's a lot to be excited about. And I remember when I went to school, there was recycling, for example, wasn't really a thing. Nobody recycled anything. Everything just went to the waste. And that was in the 90s. And within a very short period of time, recycling picked up and there was the opportunity to reduce your waste because a lot of it was being recycled. Now, whether or not they're doing a good job recycling is another matter entirely. But the fact that there has been really rapid social change in a very short period of time gives hope that we can make a really meaningful impact over the next decades to come because we're just at the beginning of really meaningful large-scale commitments. And in a short period of time, we've got some exciting wins. Yeah. And how do you personally, as someone on the front lines of the environmental movement, maintain a positive mindset for yourself? when it comes to conservation work and what keeps you going and believing that your work is making a tangible change? Well, I would say that I'm in many ways very lucky because I work in this system where we're seeing incredible natural recoveries, projects that are going down in perpetuity. These reefs are being constructed with communities, with government, with industry. And they're going down not just for five or 10 years. These are reefs that are being put back into nature for good. And hopefully generations from now, the people who I get to work with or rather their grandkids will also be aware of these reefs, but it won't just be a few reefs. There'll be reefs being restored all around the coastline or wherever it's meaningful. I would say that there's been a shift over the last 15, 20 years for people working in conservation where 15 years ago, just from reading the literature, it's seen that there was a lack of hope. That's maybe because scientists, ecologists, environmental scientists have spent a lot of time over the last few decades as the discipline of ecology has evolved and different 
scientific disciplines have evolved. Documenting decline, that's been the focus for a lot of the science since the 50s, 60s, 70s. And there's been this transition over the last couple of decades to more solution science, where people are looking for the ways to help the environment, not just write obituaries for the death of the ocean, but actually help it survive and adapt and maintain its potential as a breadbasket, not just for humanity, but for the planet. So there's a lot of people working in all sorts of conservation fields, which would be really, really mentally taxing day in, day out. But working in the restoration space and seeing the rapid momentum is a really inspiring place to be. And when I first started working on oysters, that was back in 2012, when I was looking for an honours project to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to count ants in a forest. Thank goodness I didn't. At that stage, there was no indication of what was about to happen. Nobody was talking about restoration. There was very little work that had been done on oysters as a component of the ecosystem. All the work on oysters was about aquaculture. And within three years of 2012, there was a few papers published, really critical ones, showing that this loss had happened. And it just opened people's eyes from next to no knowledge that we had lost these incredibly enormous reef ecosystems. In 2015, the first small pilot reef was constructed. And as of last year, we're up to 60 reefs across the nation. And we're not talking about small pilot reefs. We're talking about large 20 hectare reefs composed of thousands of tons of limestone to provide the substrate to bring back these ecosystems. That's in the blink of an eye. Hopefully this is just the beginning and we can keep that momentum going. And of course, the scale of recovery relative to the scale of loss is minuscule. But we need to recognize that these things will take time. And the very fact that there's this cultural shift towards more environmental stewardship is really encouraging. I found my conversation with Dr. McAfee to be enlightening for a number of reasons. As an aspiring conservation biologist and ocean enthusiast, I was excited to talk to a fellow marine conservationist about his work. Since I became interested in conservation in high school, I idealized the concept of nature, imagining it as something, when pristine, untouched by human activity. I believed that the goal of conservation was to restore nature to this ethereal form. As I have grown as a scientist, I have come to realize that this is not the case. Nature does not exist without humanity. In fact, we exist in a geological age known as the Anthropocene. As such, we must consider the role of humanity in maintaining and destroying ecosystems, such as the oyster reefs that Dr. McAfee studies. In this interview, Dr. McAfee discusses the importance of delving back in our history to understand how people have sustainably used ecological resources, such as oysters. He also touches upon the importance of indigenous knowledge in conservation efforts. And lastly, he emphasizes the importance of local community engagement in the success of conservation projects. When considering all of these meditations together, I came to realize that Dr. McAfee painted a beautiful picture of a harmonious coexistence between humans and oysters, one that has existed in the past and may exist in the future due to his restoration efforts. And most importantly, Dr. McAfee emphasized to me the importance of considering humans in conservation efforts. You must consider ourselves in the equation of shellfish reef restoration, and by extension, all conservation efforts for the possibility of their successes. I think we tend to forget our roots in nature. For most of us, our day-to-day -day existence is so easily decoupled from the ongoings of the natural world. We came from nature and are dependent on its function, and that is a fact we cannot let ourselves forget. As Dr. McAfee asserts, history proves that humans and oysters have existed amicably. It is only relatively recently that our relationship has turned sour. 
So why not return to our roots, see oysters for who they truly are in all of their introverted beauty, appreciate their multifaceted role in our lives, storing carbon, filtering water, providing marine habitat, being delicious with hot sauce. Let us not forget about the oyster. And now, back to the interview. And it's amazing that you've been able to do that in such a short amount of time and just to build the awareness as you're talking about there are some species, the charismatic ones like the dolphins, we can identify, right? There's this kind of social element that we have with them. And you address the hard sell about oysters, but they're amazing. And to focus in on one, there are the pearl oysters. Just tell us about the sexual reproduction of oysters, which is unusual and fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for picking up on that. I mean, they are incredible beasts. You know, dolphins have cute eyes. Marine mammals, we have a natural affinity with them. How do you engage with a shelled introvert that hides away its entire life? But if we think about them as an organism, they are quite fascinating. So part of the reproductive process for the oyster that I work on, they are what we call sequential hermaphrodites. That means that they can switch between male and female almost on a daily basis. When you open them up, you can actually sometimes see egg and sperm next to each other. Incredibly dynamic organisms. They redefine in many ways how we think about sexuality. It's far more fluid with oysters. One of the amazing things about them, though, is that they were forming these reefs since before the time of the dinosaurs. Uh, following the mass extinction that paved the way for the dinosaurs to dominate the earth. Oysters already looked as they do today. Of course, they've kept evolving because the pathogens are always changing, etc. But they pretty much settled on an incredibly successful life strategy 250 million years ago and have been forming reefs throughout that time. In where I live, in southern Australia, it's very arid. Outback Australia is not far from where I'm sitting. And if I drive inland 100 kilometres, it's very dry, flat, hot. And I can drive up to a 5 million-year-old oyster reef that stands out in the middle of the outback. It's, it stretches six metres in into the air and it's been fossilized, of course, but you can still see the individual oysters and you can still see where polychaetes and bryozoans and other little marine critters were burrowing into those oysters on the seafloor five million years ago. And it's amazing to see that natural museum because now instead of marine worms and snails living in amongst them, they've got outback spiders and trees growing on top of them. Most of those sort of historic remnants either shell middens, which were enormous, containing trillions and trillions of shells deposited by humans over millennia, or natural reefs. Most of them were harvested, much like the oysters on the seafloor. They were harvested on land and crushed up for fertilizer and things like that. So there's just this ultra-useful resource, dead or alive. And you touched on colonial Australia being built on the backs of oysters. That's because we harvested them not just for food, but to burn them to manufacture cement to build colonial buildings back in the day. So they were just so sought after. And we've had this really destructive love-hate relationship with oysters for millennia, or going back hundreds of, even before Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, Homo erectus were diving for oysters, collecting oysters, feasting off oyster reefs. So there's an incredible history there. And I have written about it and I'm hoping to publish it very, very soon because it's a really exciting story about how we've engaged with oysters and how they've influenced human history over a very, very long time. 
And this month is World Oceans Month, and it's a constant source of mystery. And I don't like to focus so much on the utilitarian aspect, but it's what motivates people. So I know that with the coral reefs, they're cancer-fighting drugs. I don't know what certain elements are in the oyster reefs in terms of that. And of course, we've discussed a little bit being a natural carbon sink, and I think that the oceans absorb like over 90% of that. We don't think about it, but the global warming. Absolutely. So... I'm sure that the ecosystems surrounding oyster reefs, much like those surrounding coral reefs, can cure all sorts of ailments and will provide all sorts of really valuable things for us in the future. But we don't know about that yet. And there's a saying that biodiversity is money in the bank because conserving biodiversity provides us the opportunity to use nature in all sorts of different ways that we can't even imagine at this stage. That's the majesty of nature and our interaction with it, which I like to think is becoming more sustainable and wiser and more appreciative of everything that nature does for us. And as you think about the future and our existential crisis and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what are some of your reflections on the beauty and wonder of the natural world? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh, that's a big question. I'm mostly hopeful for the future, though when I look at the political cycles these days, I'm not sure if that's so wise. Just the other night, I was at a the South Australian Environment Awards, and there was a lot of awards being given to high school students. It's mainly about people who've worked in the environmental sphere for their entire lives being recognised. But there's this real emergence of young people doing incredible things enabled by modern technology and a more globalised and connected world and access to amazing educational resources about what the environment does and, and means for humanity. So what I've learned over the last decade as this restoration agenda has really gained incredible momentum, it's the largest marine restoration program in Australia, is that all the achievements to date rest on the shoulders of community groups, grassroots action and projects that superseded all the work that we were doing. There were people who were wanting to conserve and preserve their backyard and their local fishways and their coastal environments because they can see living in those environments the change happening and the need for some stewardship from the local community. And recognising that people really do have an affinity to, in particular, their own backyard. People share about their local environment. In fact, there's some fascinating research to show that people typically have quite a dire view of the state of the world, but have a positive view of the local environment, which is very interesting. So it's the potential of every individual to make an impact and to spend a little bit of time thinking about their actions, how they can influence the way that other people also care about the environment. Because when you have young and passionate people involved in environmental work, there's a magnetism there that draws other people in. And that's what I've seen from the young pioneers and the emerging scientists that they can generate a lot more excitement and momentum within their own age groups. And that's really exciting. I'm excited for this next generation who are coming through and who are hyper aware of the state of the environment, the challenges that we face, and won't take political waffles for an answer. They're looking for solutions now, and they know that now is the time to act. 
Indeed. And you've set an excellent example. So thank you, Dominic McAfee, for reminding us that healthy marine life is critical to the healthy function of the whole planet and to the lives of those who inhabit it, and for your ongoing commitment and conservation of marine ecosystems, mitigating climate change, and communicating the science in a way that speaks to all. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your work in spreading the good word. It's absolutely critical. We've all got a role to play. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Callie Cho with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Callie Cho. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.